Good morning. It is uh, always a pleasure to share communion together as his children. Um, it's a sign of our koine, our bond, which is in Jesus Christ. So um, I am not the regular preacher at Canton Bible Church. That would be John David Thompson. He is in Hawaii still uh, through next Saturday, Sunday. Um, I think they'll be back by Sunday, but we probably won't see them till our first Sunday at Victory Hall at Veterans Park, the 16th. He'll be preaching that first sermon there. Um, I have the privilege of preaching this morning and opening the Word as well as next Sunday. So uh, I'm, uh, I like what's in store, and we'll, uh, we'll get started. But we look forward. If you happen to be visiting, uh, many of you have heard John David's sermons online and welcome you to come back when he is preaching so you can see what uh, normal dispensing of God's Word looks like at Canton Bible. So. Most of us have been to the doctor where something's going on and the doc decides that we need a deeper look. So he prescribes some sort of imaging. It might be a CAT scan, might be an x-ray, might be an MRI of some sort. He needs to get a picture of something. He can't see with a rather regular physical, a regular physical inspection of your body. Maybe it's potential blockages in your heart that he wants to find out about. Maybe it's some irregular activity going on in the brain. So he sends us to a technician who is in charge of a machine usually. And they aim that machine at us so that they can get under the skin to find out some particular area to see what's going on, to see if there's something abnormal something that might be going on that's detrimental to our health or worse. He wants to capture a clearer picture under the surface so that when he gets the pictures back and the images back, he can assess if things are not the way they ought to be. It's interesting whenever we're in that position, and most of us have been there at one point or another, um, whether it's looking at a baby in the womb, whether it's checking the heart for your age, whether it's suspicion of something else that's going on. And we've got amazing ability to take three-dimensional pictures and provide them to the doctor. It might be illogical, but when that happens to me, there's some part of me that really doesn't want to do it. I don't know whether it's that I'm afraid of the potential news and how I'm going to deal with it, so it's like ignorance is bliss, but I know better. Maybe you've experienced that before. I, I, you know, you don't want to have to deal with the potential bad news, but you don't even know if it's bad news yet. So we submit ourselves to that imaging. Well, today, I'll be asking each of us to submit ourselves to undergoing a spiritual CT scan. I'm going to ask you, and, and I'm going to open myself up to the Creator, that He might disclose some things that you don't see on the surface, something that might not be as it should be. 
He sees it all anyway, by the way. He doesn't need to scan for his knowledge, obviously. He needs to show us that things aren't right. If anyone can counsel us following that scan into spiritual health, it's our great physician. We're encouraged several places in scriptures to examine ourselves. We just went through that out of 1 Corinthians 11 with communion. In context there, there were brothers and sisters who were coming to the communion table selfishly. Pride and self was in the forefront. And Paul was whacking that and saying, that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. You're in danger of judgment to take communion without examining yourselves, confessing your sin. And so we experience that. That's one spot. So we want to, and I'm asking us today, that we would put ourselves under the scrutinizing eye of God the Father, have Him deliver both the diagnosis, what's actually going on, the prognosis, if I don't do anything about it, where is it headed? What, what will come of me? And then look at what His heavenly treatment plan for our condition really is. Some other spots that, you, that might be familiar, Job himself in, in his ordeal Speaking to God, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let him know my integrity. That should clue us in. This is not a normal visual image. God looks straight at the heart with his scans. There's no normal exam more accurate or more penetrating than God's. Hebrew 4 confirms the depth of God's penetrating knowledge. And he uses the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. What scan can reveal your thoughts, your desires, your passions, your discontentment. There's no scan that humans can come up with to show us those things. The psalmist in 26, 2 says, Examine me, Lord. Put me to the test. Refine my mind and my heart. We must submit our thinking as well as our hearts, our heart's desires and their intentions for God's approval. And probably the one we are most familiar with is Psalm 139, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As I said, God doesn't examine us for His benefit. But if we will open ourselves up to His Word to His Spirit, He will allow us to see the truth and have the opportunity to agree with Him, repent where necessary, and walk in a manner that's pleasing to Him. We're going to look at a very short psalm in this scan this morning. It's Psalm 15. If you haven't opened yet there, go ahead and open to Psalm verse, 
uh, uh, chapter 15. There's only only five verses in chapter 15 of Psalm. There's only a few Psalms with, with fewer verses. But even with five verses, it packs a powerful punch. It's not a complicated psalm. As you will see in verse 1, David poses a clear and straightforward question. And then he proceeds to answer it in verses 2 through 5. At face value, it's a call to holy living. If you have your Bibles and you've opened it, Uh, Let's read together and then we'll pray before we dig into the scriptures here. It begins, Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may reside in your tent? Who may settle on your holy hill? One who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor bring shame to his friends on his friend. A despicable person is despised in his eyes, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. He does not lend his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. One who does these things will never be shaken. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for Shepherd David and King David. The way you used him recorded so much of his life and his heart. And here the Psalms that he penned. And in many cases you've given us insight into what was going on in his life when he expressed either prayers or journals, if you would, of his own walk and struggles and rejoicings. Lord, we admit and know that we are dependent on your Spirit, not just to help us understand the meaning, but more importantly, Lord, that your Spirit would take your Word and it would be the thing that nourishes our soul Lord, speak to us from your word in a way that only your spirit can, that we might respond in obedience and indeed walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. The Hebrew text here begins by telling us that this is a psalm of David. However, unlike many other psalms, it doesn't give us any of the occasion for why he was thinking or writing these things or penning a song. Many psalms like um, Psalm 14, just before it, if you look at it, uh, says it is a psalm of David, but it's written to the choir or music director. Some, if you were to flip back to chapter 3, says it's a psalm of David when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. In many of those cases, we have a privilege of going back, maybe reading the record of David's life, and then at the same time looking at the psalm that he penned. We don't have that in Psalm 15. All we know is that it was of David. Something had David pondering the awesome presence of God, which he had witnessed personally several times and in many ways. And he's questioning what it takes 
to enjoy God's presence. During his reign as king, the tabernacle itself was five and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem in a town called Gibeon. So that's where the sacrifices and the worship was taking place at the tabernacle. At some point in his reign, David decided, after the defeat of the Philistines, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You may recall that event. He was going to build a tent in Jerusalem and have the Ark right there in Jerusalem. In the process of coming down the hill of Gibeon, Uzzah tried to reach out and stabilize, stabilize the Ark. It must have been jostling as the, as the donkeys and all were, were riding down the hill. And you know the story. You're not allowed to touch the ark. God will take care of his ark. Uzzah was immediately killed. God took Uzzah's life for trying to stabilize the ark of, the, of God. David was upset. He was angry with the Lord. The judgment of God on Uzzah made him frustrated. He waited over three months after this to continue on to Jerusalem, just five and a half miles, and bring the ark to Jerusalem. We read that David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? 2 Samuel 6. We know that the ark represents the very presence of God. If God's purity and God's holiness as represented in that ark was so powerful, David's asking, how can I have the ark in my presence? How can it be near me? Many have actually speculated that that's the time at which David penned Psalm 15, where he says, who can, who can be in God's presence? What does it take? We don't know for sure, but clearly David was pondering what a person needed to be close to God, to be in his presence. Whatever it was that prompted David's thoughts and prayerful song, he abruptly begins with a question, actually two questions. And as John David has taught us, oftentimes in the Hebrew poetry, they will repeat the same phrase with slightly different words to give it more clarity, more emphasis. And that's what happens in the two questions that David asks. So there's the word reside, and the word settled, and the word tent, and holy hill. Who can reside in your tent or tabernacle? Who can settle in your holy hill? And looking into those words, we get a little bit of insight that the sense of reside is really a visit it's not a long-term where you live in your home. It's just a visit. Not a permanent stay, but not necessarily real short either. Something akin to a restful stay with a relative. I picture Moses visiting the tent of meeting, which was just for him. He would stay for long periods of time with Joshua sitting outside the tent of meeting. And we know from Exodus 33, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a man, to his friend. I would love to have seen that or been there. That would be awesome. The second word, settle, in the second question, really is more of a permanent stay. 
David's asking a slightly different question here. If I was to settle in your presence or live, settle down in your holy hill close to you, what would that take? I was going to make it my home, the place that I return to every evening. We know that David wasn't actually literally asking to dwell in the tent or on the holy hill because where the tabernacle was, where the tent of tabernacle was set up, nobody lived in the tabernacle. The Levites and the family of Aaron were the closest serving there every day, but nobody lived in the tabernacle. So clearly these are metaphors or words of metonymy that are substituting for the actual presence of God. At its core then, David's asking, what must a man do or be to live in God's presence? This is quite a vital, big question. We ask it a lot of different ways in today's world. What must I do to go to heaven? David wanted more than just a future. He wanted to walk in the presence of God. By extension, certainly, he wanted to live there forever. David begins his answer to those questions in verse 2, and the answer that he gives continues in one sentence all the way to the middle of verse 5. That's all one sentence. And in a bit, we're going to look at four categories that David outlines that are necessary for a man or a woman if they desire to live in God's presence. The psalm was written, though, in the Old Covenant during the Mosaic Law. We have the timely fortune of seeing things from this side of the cross. When, so when, when David says, and if I was to ask you, Lord, who can reside in your tent? Who can be in your presence? Or who can settle on your holy hill? If I ask that today, most every one of you would have an answer. And it would point to Jesus. We sang it. He is my righteousness. If you're like me, And as I reflect back in school, if I knew the answer, whether it was math or some other, I knew the answer, and the teacher's asking a question. Mine was the first hand to go up, and it was shaken. I know, I know, I can tell you. Maybe a little too eager. We do know. We've read, we've studied the book of Romans and Galatians. We understand that Jesus became our righteousness and was utterly... I'm sorry, and we understand that Jesus became for us the righteousness that was utterly vacant in our lives. We know the answer to David's question is in Jesus alone. He is our righteousness. He fulfilled the law. I'm accepted by God and before God because of what he's accomplished. Nothing else. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom opening access through Jesus into God's presence. We know and understand these things. What's curious, a bit surprising, and a touch confusing is I believe David understood 
that no man on his own merit could gain God's favor. And I don't just guess at that. Flip back to chapter 14 for a moment. Look at just the first three verses with me. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you see the dichotomy between chapter 14 and chapter 15? By the way, this chapter 14, you recognize, is the very passage that Paul quotes with the phenomenal exposition of how you are right and justified before God the Father. And it lies only in Jesus Christ by faith. He quoted David. He understood, David did, that mankind is helpless to approach God in and of himself. It required a righteousness that we could not muster at our best. I want to consider a few verses as we wrestle a touch with this idea of the remainder of chapter 15, because we know the answer to the question. We have the New Testament. We have Paul's exposition. We just, we just focused on Jesus, our access to the Father. He was real severe, Jesus was, with the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, sons of the devil. And yet, in chapter 5, verse 20, he points to them and he raises the bar on righteousness. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These guys were meticulous, fastidious, diligent to do tiny, detailed stuff to be acceptable to God. So it is not in degree that our righteousness is to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Rather, it is in kind. Our obedience is rooted and comes from the heart and yields true righteousness. In response to his love for us, we confess, repent, and obey from the heart. Not to gain access and acceptance by him, but in loving obligation to him for what he has granted to us. Romans 6, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. David knew this. If we look at his confessions in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, we, those several of his prayers of confession reveal his theology as it relates to how he is accepted before God. Just listen to these statements out of those two passages. 
Psalm 51, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. He says, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. In Psalm 32, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Okay, so we agree with David that acceptance in God's presence, acceptance by God, must originate from God. He paid the price, opened the door to come to him in confession and brokenness and then ultimately obedience. As Hebrews puts it, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we've answered David's questions. What do we do with verses two through five? We know they're true words, but they seem lawful. They seem mosaic. According to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, this is a test. According to Ephesians 8, 2 through, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, why were we saved? Anybody who claims to be a believer, why were you saved according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? I'll read it. You'll hear the answer. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And then not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. Paul said and prayed for the Colossians that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Similarly to the Thessalonians, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging you and imploring you, each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Same to the Ephesians. Listen to Peter. Talk about a challenge to believers. 2 Peter 1. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Listen to this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things... You will never stumble. 
For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. We're afraid of passages like this, aren't we? Oh, it sounds too fundamental. It sounds too pharisaical. Not so. It has nothing to do with gaining acceptance, everything to do with duty and obligation to the Father who saved us. In James' argument on, the ha- on behalf of good works in the lives of believers, he makes this statement. But someone may say, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith with my works. The fruit, the fruit of true salvation is a changed life. The fruit of true salvation is a changed life. If a life does not change, we are right to question the validity of what has taken place in the heart. Has there been a heart change? And I would submit that verses 2 through 5 of Psalm 15 is a synopsis of the changed life of obedience resulting in righteous living. Not to gain acceptance, but rather in response to God's faithful, persistent gospel message. His faithfulness to forgive and save the brokenhearted. I'm going to be the first and very quick to note that having begun in faith, we don't and are not perfected by any other method. Your works aren't perfecting you. We're perfected only by His Spirit and His Word working out our obedience. Even in the the sanctifying work of obedient living, we are helpless to do it without Him. I want to look now at four categories out of chapter 15 that should reflect a changed heart. Categories in our life, in our living. And let's ask the Lord to focus His loving and pure eyes on these areas to examine us, to judge us, to evaluate us and guide us in confession, repentance, and right living. After all, that's really what it means to walk in a manner worthy. We make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Each morning we wake up, we ought to reset or re-aim our hearts. We ought to reset our sights and they should be aimed at pleasing Him. The first area that David highlights is that we must walk with integrity. He says in verse 2, one who walks with integrity and practices righteousness. The pattern of our behavior should be marked by righteous acts, good and right choices, morally and ethically, according to the standard of God. Revelation 19.8 indicates that believers are are to adorn themselves with righteous acts. The person then who is acceptable in the sight of God is the one who does the will of God. As I quoted 
Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be pleasing to him. Our walk must be pleasing to him. Our behavior must be in line from the heart with integrity and right choices. Secondly is our talk. Several comments made throughout the next three verses are made about our speech. What we say must be reliable and dependable. It must be truthful. But this quote takes our speech to an entirely new level. It must be from the heart or sincere. No guile, no half-truths, no hidden agendas. Paul tells us to let your yes be yes and your no be no. We need to avoid the temptation to just, I'm just going to slant the truth just a little bit. At work, you're asked, how long is it going to take to complete this project? You know it's six to eight weeks. You know they need it done in four. Uh, Four to six weeks. I just want to be a little more. So I tint it. It's not really telling the truth. Half lies, or excuse me, half truths are full lies. How do you deliver those messages? Or a phone call where it's uncomfortable, you have to explain that you can't be there and maybe you don't give all the full reason, you tint it a little bit. Your kids are watching, but God himself is watching. Careless words are dangerous. James 3 is all over it. Says our tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Who can tame it? Says if any man can tame the tongue, he can tame the whole body. Matthew 12, Jesus speaking says, But I tell you that every careless or idle word that men shall speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Verses 2b, 3, all of 3, and 4b of chapter 15 include slanderous speech. That would be spreading damaging gossip that harms another's reputation. Words that are malicious and meant to harm. Cutting taunts, scorn, criticism, personal attacks. And in 4b, it even includes keeping one's word when it's not convenient And it's no longer in my favor. Why is talk so critical? Why has David spent almost three verses explaining that our words indicate whether we can be in the presence of God? Jesus answered that from Luke 6. For each tree is known by its fruit, for people do not gather figs, from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth that which is evil, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Our words expose our heart. By the way, if you want in, in this idea of my speech and being acceptable... And what's, what, where are the limits? 
because our world is all screwed up with, with these promises and these commitments of what can I say, what can't I say, defining what slander is, what is gossip, what is, we're confused by it. Wonderful, wonderful sermon a couple of years ago by a gentleman named Mike Riccardi. Uh, you can look it up by putting how to kill your neighbor is the name of the sermon. Wonderful. If you want to listen, how to kill your neighbor by Mike Riccardi is uh, a great sermon to listen to. It's available all over. I'll warn you, it's extremely convicting. That may be a scan you want to avoid. Thirdly, we must be discerning in our loyalties and allegiances. Four, beginning of four, A says that a despicable person is despised in this person's eyes, but he honors those who fear the Lord. We are to be discerning about people and their character and make wise choices. What the Lord honors, we are to find honorable. What the Lord despises, we are to despise. As you know, popular culture idolizes rebellious behavior, vile behavior, foul character, and the Lord hates it. We are not to join that party. We're to walk away. By the way, uh, this includes multiple media influences where we subject ourselves and participate in the world's assessment of people, and it's not godly. And when we see honorable acts and honorable people, we are to commend it privately and publicly. So what do I say? Choose your friends and associates on the, with the same level of discernment. Choose your allegiances extremely carefully. I recall in the seventh and eighth grade, uh, getting a phone call. Actually, my mom received a phone call from another mom, Mrs. McBrayer, Jim McBrayer's mom, called home and said, Elaine, is it possible that you could get David to invite Jim over this weekend? Could he spend Friday and Saturday night with you guys? Jim has, at 7th and 8th, you can get the age. Jim's decided to start hanging out with the wrong people, experimenting with poor choices, getting in trouble, poor character. Um, we actually invited Jim and he refused. He wouldn't come over. And I didn't track with Jim very long, but by the time we made it to high school, I know he had spent time in detention and several other things. But who we choose as friends matters. And we should be, according to this, very discerning about the allegiances and loyalties that we develop. Finally, our dealings must be fair and compassionate. Verse 5 says, he doesn't lend his money at interest. Interesting word there. He doesn't, because we, we know interest. I even loan money at interest. Am I wrong? No. The word here literally says, don't loan money with a bite. The implication is, I'm going to take advantage of a person who is disadvantaged. So you find somebody in a difficult financial situation, instead of working to help them, you want to take advantage of it. They have to have help. 
And so you, uh, it's usury, it's, it's excessive interest, unnecessary interest. And then the, then the last part there, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. It implies a perversion of justice. This would include both partiality and favoritism, which James spoke highly against. A wealthy person, an influential person, we inherently try to treat a little bit different. Give them a little better seat. Give them a little better attention. That's ungodly. Our walk must be one of integrity. Our talk must be honest and sincere. Our associations, discerning and God-pleasing, and our dealings must be fair and compassionate. The final part of verse 5 says, Do these things and you will not be shaken. So now we're on the table. I'm going to pull you out from the, the examining scanner. How did you do? We need to ask the Lord to examine each of those areas in our own lives and show, is there a hurtful way in me? Not just hurtful to Him, but hurtful to me. And to lead me in the way everlasting. Let's open together to James chapter, 20, or chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. Let's read that together. Follow along. James 1, verses 22 to 25. When we subject ourselves to the scrutiny of God's Word... We like to go home and not necessarily ponder it, not spend a lot of time in it necessarily. James describes this person. We come to church, we're exposed to God's Word. Maybe he places his finger on something that I'm aware that I do. Maybe it's my speech with my own wife, the one I claim to love more than any other on earth. And I say hurtful things. Maybe it's examples I've put before my kids. Maybe it's something at work. Verse 22 of chapter 1 of James. I'm going to read through 25. It's a great picture. It's the guy that has his hair messed up in the mirror. And he gazes at the mirror, sees it, and he walks away. He doesn't fix his hair. 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Pray with me. Father, thank you for David's pinning of Psalm 15. 
We don't know what was in his heart, but we see so much of his life, his friendship with you, his commitment to knowing you, to walking with you, to claiming your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we pray that as as we open your word, as we see your word, that the work you would do would be everlasting. Create in us a clean heart that's not only acceptable to you, but builds in us Christ-likeness. That's the righteousness we need. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the spirit within who empowers and strengthens and convicts. Lord, would you be pleased today in our thoughts, in our meditations, in our heart's desires, and correct us where you're not. In your name we pray, amen.